Hi, this is Panel Beater and this is the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page. It's myself, Panel Beater, Dr. Sharma and Dr. Neo. Good morning. Good, good morning. And in classic radiotherapy fashion, I think a year's worth of history has happened in the past month since we last talked. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. Boy, oh boy. Um, yep, the world's on uh, the brink. Um, we've lost a couple of icons, um, music and sport. Oh uh, it's been going on. Um, but you guys doing well, Dr. Neo? Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, for, for those of you uh, missing out on the, uh, the visual uh, medium, yeah, uh, panel beater uh, said, uh, "Doing all right, Doctor Neo." Uh, to me, that's right. He's uh, things he's... are going well here. Um, no, things are well. Things are well. I've started my um, my job in pediatrics this month, and I think I think the biggest difference is that uh, it's been culturally acceptable for me to. Purchased my first set of wiggle scrubs. Um, Up until oh, the point, all those is... purchases were not culturally. No, 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 they weren't. No, no, I've been... we're all going. What are you doing? <laughs> um, yeah, what, what, what are your options if when you're at the kids? You so you got the wiggles. What else? Uh, uh, Bluey is a very Bluey. is a very popular uh, icon at the children's. But then we also get some of the. Um, you know, it's some of the classics like The Simpsons yep. uh, get to play. Um, is is Muppets still a thing? Bob the Builder, Thomas the Tank. No, I think I think you're um, you're about twenty years twenty years uh, too late here. <laughs> really, uh, Punch and Judy. You gotta, you're, not, you're not up with the kids. It's uh... yeah. Um, and you went with the Wiggles, of course. A particular colour, or you've got no. They've just they've they've in. Again, in classic 2022 sense, they've done a designer um, mashup with one of the other Scrubs brands. So uh, it's um, it's very classy, I must say. Nice. What's the latest for you, Dr. Sharma? Looking at you, Dr. Sharma. Yes. yes. <laughs> well, for the last uh, couple of years, I've been working in COVID quarantine with people who are COVID positive uh, who are staying in Victoria's hotels. And that program is now being shifted across to the quarantine hub. Uh, and so that... that Brings to conclusion my my work under <laughs> the uh, auspices of Alfred Health. It's been a hell of a project, but I tell you what, you know, one really positive reflection I was having was, despite the fact you know I've been working crazy hours, the workload itself has actually come down because of the effect of vaccination. Yeah, right. Almost everyone's coming in double, triple vaccinated. They're getting less sick. Means less work for me to do. Who would have guessed it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. It's science. That whole thing. Um, I'm back on campus. Hey. Yeah. I've um, been teaching mostly, most of the last couple of years behind a computer screen. So now this means so many different things, but one of the things it means I can actually see real human beings. And you have to start wearing pants to work. <laughs> start, well, yeah. Yeah, I found that out the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> so what's it been like seeing them in, in person? It's great. It's great, yeah. Are you it, noticing it, a different dynamic, the, the questions you get or people oh, hanging out after the end of class? Automatically there's a different dynamic because um, students, for reasons I completely understand, but they nevertheless made a made it a really um, a bit of a slog. We weren't coming on camera, so I had no body language to deal mm. to work with, and body language is really really important when you're 
trying to transfer the sorts of things or, you know, communicate the sorts of things that we were doing. So mm. I'm just so glad um, to be on. We've still got all the big security measures, but it does still feel like a little bit of a roll of the dice given mm. we're in, in so many of us in enclosed spaces and stuff. Mm. But, um, but we're back on campus. That's the headline. It's good news. Hey, um, just before we um, look at what's coming up in the show, I just want to um, check in with you guys. There's a bit of chatter on the back of the rather sad passing of one of our icons, Shane Warne. Mm. Um, and can we put something to bed? There is no association. We're not, we shouldn't assume that there's a, um, a heart vaccination issue, myocarditis, mm. with this story. Yeah, so, we? I mean, firstly... To the best of my knowledge, and I haven't read these for about 12 hours now, the, the cause of his death is, is yet unconfirmed, but we are seeing a huge amount of chatter about myocarditis and, and this being caused by the vaccine. You know, there's there's no doubt that all vaccines have benefits over risks. These, these vaccines for COVID, the, the benefits far outweigh the risks. And if you're concerned particularly about myocarditis, this effect of, uh, of the heart becoming inflamed, you're much more likely to get myocarditis from actual COVID infection mm. as opposed to the vaccine. And the way this uh, virus is spreading and is going to continue to spread, you're not really going to get a, a choice whether you have an interface with the virus or not. So best to have the vaccine uh, before, you, before you get the virus and uh, end up with myocarditis that's likely to be much more likely and worse. Yeah. And I think it's natural for people to speculate about a death like this in such a high-profile individual. But, I mean, I, I think personally putting something out like, you know, this is definitely myocarditis related to the vaccine is just an awful way for yeah. this man to be remembered by his family. Like, yeah. I think it just, you know, we need to give them some time to to actually process this. And um, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a real distraction. And, and yeah. any any opportunity... Some people are being very opportunistic with the anti-vax message around yeah, it. And, yeah, and I think good, glad that we were able to put needs, that... Yeah, put to bed. Yep, yep, yep. Nice one. Huge show coming up. Um, we've got our, our special guest uh, for today is uh, Arun Jagan. Um, he's the Médecins Sans Frontières, a.k.a. Doctors Without Borders, um, Australian Advocacy, Advocacy Coordinator. Um, and uh, we thought with a lot of the issues going on in the world, um, be they man-made or you know, natural disaster or uh, conflict zone, um, somebody like um, Medicine Sans Frontier might be able to um, give us some insight in what it's like to deliver emergency services mm. in these sorts of contexts. And uh, Arun will be up uh, very, very shortly. Um, Dr Sharma, you've caught a really interesting uh, item. It's something I've been watching develop over the last couple of years, and it's an epidemic, but it's a different kind of epidemic. We don't think it's one that's caused by a bacteria or a virus. We think perhaps it's a social contagion uh, being spread through by social media, and we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. I want to kind of keep the surprise, and I'd love to pick you guys' brains Brilliant. about what your thoughts are. Yeah, looking forward to that. And then at the very tail end, a little whimsical uh, segment we're loosely calling Pop Goes Your Health, where... Where me, as a, um, a cynical and sceptical um, mm-hmm. uh, observer of pop health and self-help uh, trends, uh, gets to check in with the big expert brains of Dr Neo and Dr Sharma on something that's caught my eye in the pop health or self-help realm. And this week I've got questions around what is being called dopamine fasting. More on that mm-hmm. uh, at the tail end. Is it all it's... <laughs> sold as. Uh, I think the answer is going to be no, but let's find out for sure. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. 
To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. Joining us on the phone uh, from Sydney is Arun Jagan from um, Medicine Sans Frontier, Doctors Without Borders. Arun is MSF's Australians, Australia's Advocacy Coordinator and uh, comes to us with a wealth of experience working in all sorts of um, uh, contexts in which um, MSF works. So he's been part of their emergency teams and as a head of mission project coordinator in a number of countries. Check this out, guys. Syria, Tajikistan, Afghanistan, Yemen, Bangladesh, Venezuela, and prior to that, a, a career in a number of um, other humanitarian um, uh, NGOs based in places like Iraq, Sri Lanka, Lebanon, Afghanistan, Syria, Turkey and Jordan. There's plenty for us to talk to Arun about. Arun on the phone, welcome to Radiotherapy and Triple R. Hello, it's excellent to join you today and I'm speaking from Cattle Country here in what is now rainy Sydney and I will try my best to help cure some of the Saturday night hangovers, the pressure is <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah, uh, curing Saturday night hangovers on Sunday morning for a long time, that's right. Um, just on that point, uh, we, I, we down here have seen the, uh, the weather radars, how, how are things for you? It's going, it's, it's, it let off yesterday, but today it's, uh, it's restarted again, so you know, I live, in, I live near Marrickville, which, uh, which we've had a lot of... Um, flooded areas and, and leaks through the roofs and all that, but I think uh, it's not the worst hit spot in Australia, that's for sure. Sure. So we're doing it okay comparatively. Perhaps we can come down, come back to some um, natural disasters and similar situations <laughs> that you've, um, you've dealt with in the past, but let's start quite generally. Um, Medicine Sound Frontier is, a, is a, obviously a, a humanitarian NGO, but it's, it's distinct from very many of the other NGOs that uh, a, lot of, um, a lot of listeners will be familiar with. What distinguishes MSF and the work it does? I think our independence, that's the, that's the key word that I probably want to highlight here. It's one of the few organisations that doesn't receive, that receive, that, you know, I think 98% of its funding comes from private donations from people like you, me, um, you know, grandmas all around the world. And, and that really allows us to have the flexibility to respond to the most acute needs without having any interference from institutions like governments or donors. Um, and, you know, in my experience, I've worked with the emergency team now for a number of years, and that's really the, the separating factor. We're often the, the first on the ground and the last to leave, and that's because we're able to make these decisions quite, quite quickly. And that's linked to the funding, right? And and that's funding from around the world. Is there is there a all part of the, the world? world? Yeah. Sorry, Aaron. Uh, so yeah, all over the world. That's um, that's you know, big countries like US, Australia, Canada. Um, but then it, it it spans everywhere. We take funding from anyone um, anyone from all over the world. And then and then um, what what are the sorts of uh, tasks at hand for MSF? Yeah, it's a big one. Um, I mean, primarily we're in a we're an emergency organisation, so we try to try to uh, respond to some of the most acute conflicts. I mean, I'm sure you're following that we're we're doing stuff in Ukraine right now. If there's a natural disaster, we'll try to respond. But yeah, anything that's related to armed conflict, uh, political crises, economic crises, or natural or man-made disasters. Aaron, uh, you mentioned the complete independence that your organisation has from a funding viewpoint. I imagine that's quite important when you're entering entering conflict zones where you don't want to have 
any kind of perceived bias uh, at play. But it's still incredibly volatile environments that you're entering. That's God, that's a bit of an understatement now that I've said that. I, I'm wondering, you know, from an organisational viewpoint, what are the, what is the process like of entering a conflict zone? How do you say to everyone, hey, uh, you know, do you have your little conflict, but <laughs> yeah. let us just get on with the job and, and do things peacefully. What on earth is that process like to enter that? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very complicated one, as you said, and and yeah, fund, uh, independent funding can only take you so far. But but you know what what I think it all comes back down to is 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 the needs, and I think I can give you a good example of of Yemen. Yeah, so we've got. Um, Thai City is a project I worked for in, I think, in 2016. Yeah, so it's a it's a little city in the middle of Yemen. There's a front line that runs straight through it, and we've got a hospital on either side, on both sides of 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 the front line. So that's on you know one what one would consider an enemy side, and the other one would consider a friendly side, and vice versa. Yeah, so that's a really difficult position for anyone to be a part of because one side will be like, hey, why are you helping the others? And the other side will be saying, hey, why are you helping the others there? And But what we try to do is we try to really bring about that core humanitarian principles of, of, of neutrality and independence and say, hey, we will only support you here if you allow us access um, to the other side. And in that, in that situation, you know, the Yemeni healthcare system had collapsed. War wounded were scr- through the roof. Malnutrition rates were really high. Outbreaks were happening. And you, you, the, 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 the parties themselves could not cope. So there is often a need for organizations like MSF to be there. So more than not, you'd be surprised, but most are, like in most armed conflict, you're able to negotiate some kind of access based on that common need to help the people that are in that area and and if you can find that middle ground <laughs> that's the that is really the the i would say the that separates a, a good humanitarian response or a good humanitarian negotiation of access to another one yeah and so you know we try our best we we fail sometimes but in many in many situations as you can see we we've been operating in afghanistan for the last 30 years we've had good negotiations with both sides of the party we've been operating since the taliban took over um, uh, Yemen, you know, was continuing to be in that entire city, one of the most volatile um, parts of the world, really. Um, so you can see that, you know, this, this, this adherence to independence and humanitarian principles can get you far. Now, I'm not going to romanticize this. It's not easy. And I think that space is shrinking. I think wars in Syria, um, wars in Iraq have, have showed us that, you know, attacks on healthcare facilities, attacks on um, against charities and hospitals show you that that, that that is under threat. So it's one of those principles, I think, that MSF not only tries to to do in practice, but really tries to hold as a, as a, as a, mm. as, as a you know, uh, let's say a need for, um, for, for operating in conflicts or when conflicts happen. Aaron, you mentioned that in a war zone that although that your your teams are caring for a lot of the war wounded, but I imagine that a lot of the other healthcare doesn't really disappear. You know, people still get cancer, people still uh, have heart attacks. Is MSF providing support for just routine healthcare in these environments? Yeah, exactly right. Um, more often than not, it really depends on where we are. You know, um, more often than not, we we do have to supplement the 
the other parts of, of, of the health system. We can't just focus um, completely on, on surgical care or war wounded. So in most of our, you know, most of our missions that we try to have a focus on sexual reproductive health care and health care for women and children, um, that's, that's a given in a conflict zone, really. Um, primary health care is, is it's, it's context dependent. In some situations, we do try and do primary health care, but then we do have to prioritize at some point. We can't do everything. But yeah, what is going to save the most lives in that at that point in time, I think is 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 the main um, is the main goal. And I can you know I can give you some examples. Like in uh, we can go a bit more in depth into Bangladesh later. But uh, you know when when a displacement happens, it's more often it's primary healthcare may not be the first thing that saves people. Water and sanitation might be the the main thing that um, help people. So I remember in that response, most of our energy, I think the first three months or first two months was really focused on building emergency latrine situation systems, uh, water trucking, water piping systems, because we knew that th- that would actually help prevent further diseases um, in the future, yeah? So um, there's a little bit, it depends on the context, really. So, Aaron, just on, uh, just occurs to me, just um, to re- return to the independence issue, are you saying MSF will take a look at, say, um, clean water projects, or are you working with other NGOs who may have expertise in that area, and therefore does working with... NGOs that don't have the independence of MSF put you in any jeopardy. Um, good, good question. Good question. And I think with the with water and sanitation, we've got our own um, engineers, we've got our own systems. But of course, we do work with local partners wherever we can. Mm. I think I want to like stress on the point of like we, we really try to focus most of our. Uh, uh, work on emergency emergency relief. Right. So that's really in areas where yeah. the acute the needs are really high, right? Yeah. And, and and not many actors are around. But in some situations, yeah, we do work with local partners. And does it affect our independence? Not if not if we do our uh, work properly. Um, yeah. we c- it, it's I think it's in our interest to work with local partners. Um, yep. Yeah. Um, yeah. Arun, so paint us a picture. I, I'm thinking of where you know. Most of us would get some kind of sense of what a uh, a scene would look like where you're doing your work, and really the only things I can come up with are maybe some news reports on on TV news or Mash. <laughs> um, can you tell? Are, are you in? And I'm, I'm sure there's a wide variety of of scenarios. But um, to what to what is what does the infrastructure look like? What are the various profiles of the medical professionals there? Who what? with the profile of non-medical staff that are working um, to provide the health services? It's a really, really interesting uh, um, comparison to MASH, because I was just saying that to my friend the other day that um, when I came back from, uh, where was it, from from Syria, that it did feel like MASH. You know, you had military helicopters running around everywhere. There was uh, convoys going here and there. But, yeah, it does really vary. It does really change. But, you know, we have, we have I've done, I've set up, healthcare clinics under trees with you know one one table and uh, a whole bunch of volunteers to kind of do crowd control to working in some of the biggest hospitals uh in um you know in in syria i worked in the raqqa national hospital which was like a like these are like grandiose palaces you know so it really depends on which context we're, we're in but i can say that we've transported medical medicines with donkeys and horses to areas We've used four-wheel drives in some areas. Um, it, it really depends. The whole point for us, though, is trying to find the 
trying to be as close as possible to the greatest number of needs. And that's often not in urban centers. It's um, in, you know, in Central African Republic and Democratic Republic of Congo. It's in very, very, very hard to reach places that even cars can't get to. So walking, motorbikes, um, yeah, animals, boats sometimes need to be used. So, yeah, it varies. And, and I guess that's the, that's the whole point. You know, we, um, we don't go, we go in with, uh, with, uh, <laughs> with the expectation that we might be sleeping in tents, we might be sleeping um, on the side of the road uh, to try and get to a place, and that has happened many times, and it happens uh, now as well. But um, yeah, the the varied uh, was that the next question, right? The varied um, profiles. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, anyone and everyone. We've got we've got um, we've got doctors, we've got nurses, we've got pediatricians, but then we've also got. Uh, mental health specialists. We've got water, water and hygiene, um, uh, sanitation engineers. We've got human resources experts, finance experts, uh, logisticians. Um, uh, I remember one of the one of the best uh, one of the best <laughs> uh, conversations I had with with my with my boss on the field one day was. Um, was we had an ex- we had two extra logisticians that were on the plane that weren't accounted for. This was in the, the middle of a chaotic scene in Bangladesh when we were trying to get as many people in the ground. And I was like, oh, we've got two extra logs coming. And he's like, oh, it's fine. We'll, we'll, we're never in shortage of logs, huh? So, so. <laughs> I really, really keen to know a little bit more about the um, the medical staff. Um, would would surgeons and the doctors and nurses and, and physios and, and so on that goes, um, would they be permanently um, linked with MSF or are they taking absences from um, a role, you know, from wherever they may be coming from? Um, are there career MSF doctors, in other words? There are career MSF doctors, but there are also doctors who um, take short stints off from their current work and um, and come and join us, especially for surgeons and stuff. Normally we take surgeons on for a few months of the year because they have other commitments elsewhere. And, yeah, and, that, and so there's a bit of a... Of, there are some there are some people who are who are MSF lifers or, and who are permanently with MSF, but we, we're obviously very flexible and need um, a wide range of people. Arun, uh, with the crisis currently unfolding in Ukraine, I'm sure there's so much volatility. You're still trying to uh, uh, to, to establish uh, what a role for MSF is in a situation that's constantly changing. There's probably things you, you can't tell us, but what can you tell us so far about how MSF has been involved? Um, sir, I think the line's a bit unclear, but I'm guessing you. I think I ca- gather that you're talking about Ukraine. Is that right? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. No problem. Um, yeah. Look, we are very deeply worried about this, uh, but this is a conflict that has been going on since 2014, and I think as the conflict in Ukraine escalates, so our teams are really preparing to step up our response. Uh, we are predicting a deepening humanitarian crisis, but not just in Ukraine, but in the neighboring countries. The sh- impact of sharp escalation and conflict on civilians, we're starting to see, you know, our teams are reporting that there is less water, no electricity and gas, where we know of some of these hospitals that are running short of essential supplies, and some hospitals have even been reported as damaged. So really, with active fighting ongoing, we're, we're trying our best to determine the true extent of the medical needs, and we're preparing for a range of scenarios, really. Um, so, you know, potentially surgical care, emergency medicine, mental health support for displaced populations. We realize that there's a lot of response going in there, so we'll have to try and find uh, where our value added is and where we can save our be- the most lives. But over the last few days, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have been forced to leave. So we've got teams in neighboring countries in Poland, Moldova, Hungary, Romania, Slovakia. 
Um, but we're very deeply committed to, to providing some kind of aid um, to these um, to these people. One of the news items that's coming out, I think, in the last 24, 36 hours after some negotiations, there's been some agreement to create um, humanitarian corridors, I think they're being referred to, mm. um, to allow safe passage. Is MSF involved? And, and if you can't speak to it specifically in Ukrainian, perhaps you can give us an idea what that actually means for delivery of um, medical services. Yeah, those are very important. The humanitarian corridors are actually completely important, and it's actually one of the motivations of why I joined MSF. So I'm a, I'm a Tamil. I'm from Sri Lanka, and I really witnessed the horrors that you know my people went through during the 35 years of civil war. And um, one of the reasons that um, that we had such an immense loss of lives and um, and suffering was really because there was no humanitarian corridor. So I think this development is a very welcome thing um, for. In, in Ukraine, it'll allow people safe passage out, but we'll have to wait and see what the what the, the details and the impact of all of that is. Um, we'll be we'll be involved in assessing and seeing where we can um, where we can make the most uh, impact right now. And I guess uh, the news from this morning is that these humanitarian corridors uh, have reportedly not being respected by some of the um, the uh, the Russian forces. Is this something that's been seen in other conflict zones before? Definitely, it's an ongoing. It's a it's a daily thing. It's a daily like I I look at access being a daily negotiation. Mm. Even once it's yeah, once it's um guaranteed by both parties, the pressures of war, the disrespect of international humanitarian law. I've seen it. Um, I've seen it in you know in hospitals in Yemen where armed uh you know armed officials would barge into protected spaces um, where we've had, you know, uh, misdirection of aid in, in Bangladesh or in Syria, you know, the bombing of hospitals, um, uh, the detainment of mass population. This happens routinely in, in, in conflict zones, but I think our role here as a humanitarian organization, as MSF and as the community, is to really make sure that people are held accountable to these. And we can provide that independent kind of verification um, on the ground uh, as a humanitarian community. Now, MSF's role is very different, but, um, but I feel like this is the ongoing negotiation in, uh, in, in a conflict zone. It is our job, in a way. And I guess that brings up a really interesting point in, in that, you know, as an independent uh, body, you, you hold a, quite a lot of power in those situations and respect from both sides. Do you... Either of the sides, like in, in previous conflicts or previous, um, you know, disaster areas, have you ever tried to be, this, have you, your force ever seen, I guess, manipulation from one of the sides or trying to be bribed or is this something that happens or is it... Uh, um... <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I think as long as humans are around, those. uh those, yeah. those, those things will happen in any con- in any context, and um, yeah, I think that's just that's just uh, that's just so important for us to ensure that you have a vision, you have mm. principles, and you're you know very well trained in those things, so that there are red lines for you. As long as you go into there knowing what your red lines are, so if bribes are happening or if corruption you do see take place, you have to understand. We have to make it very clear to the authorities that this is just unacceptable for us. And, in most situations, that message does get um, get through. And again, as I said, I think earlier in the in the in the show that they want you there. Most of the people need you there, so it's in their interest to ensure that at least the activities that are concerning um, 
around that, that MSF are involved with are kept um, principled. So if it doesn't work, then we'll have to make a call then and there whether we, we want to um, continue uh, with that relationship or not. Arun, we don't have much uh, more time um, together, but there is one thing that we really must uh, touch on, uh, given <laughs> radiotherapy over the last couple of years in particular. wonder if you could talk to us about what MSF has been doing in relation to COVID. Yeah, COVID's a really interesting one. Like, on the one hand, there's global health priorities, which we're looking at, you know, really inequitable access to care, access to vaccines, treatments, and diagnosis. I think, what, 11% of the people in low-income countries have been vaccinated. Compare that to, to what, 90, 99% in Australia. This race to get 40% of the world vaccinated in 2021 it has failed, right? That's on the one hand um, side. But the other side that I think is really worth noticing is that COVID has really put people's health needs and and status backwards. Many low-income countries and chronic humanitarian crises are facing dramatic increases in poverty, food insecurity, and a rise in infectious diseases as a direct result of COVID. Uh, we're seeing malaria on the rise again. I think there was 19, 19, 14 million more cases in 2020 compared to 2019. So our role is two things. Our role is one, to ensure that on a global level, vaccines go to the right places, but on a local level is to make sure, as we discussed before, that these, country, these, these countries already have problems and those problems shouldn't be forgotten, whether it be HIV, whether it be um, TB. Um, we need to make sure that those programs are bolstered and supported because COVID was just another challenge, just, just another challenge to what was already a very precarious situation for people. Arun, I'm really sorry. We're going to have to bring it to time. We've really appreciated um, you spending some of your Sunday morning uh, with us, and we've covered a lot of territory. It's wonderful to hear about the work that uh, Medicine Sans Frontier is doing, and we wish you and your team um, great uh, safety and uh, all the power to your work. Thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, Ken. It's a pleasure. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Dr Sharma, something going on with people and exhibiting kind of ticks from the TikToks. Have I got exactly. that right? And in, a, in an epidemic way. And it's an epidemic not in the sense of a pathogen that's like a bacteria or a virus, but a social contagion with the most recent outbreaks happening through TikTok and YouTube and Instagram. Um, there's a research team at the Hanover University Medical School that found an increasing number of videos on social media platforms, like the one I've mentioned, uh, with people who say they've now got Tourette's syndrome. Tourette's syndrome is this childhood onset chronic disorder where people have uh, motor and vocal tics. Uh, but things are not necessarily as they might appear. See... The punchline, which we're going to work our way up to, is that this may not be Tourette's syndrome, but something else. Uh, this something else being called by some researchers to be a mass psychogenic illness. Others are saying this is a functional neurological disorder. And I guess this is part of the, the issue here. How do we uh, define these things? What words do we use? And how does that frame how we're going to approach them? So things seem to kick off uh, in 2019, a German YouTube channel by a 22-year-old guy called uh, Jan Zimmermann. And he's a, his channel's called Thunderstorm in the Brain. Uh, it's a, a channel that's essentially about his... T- 
ticks, his vocal ticks that he has, and he kind of displays them on this channel, racking up just millions of views, three million subscribers, which is massive on YouTube, uh, to the extent where he's selling merchandise with you know, caps and shirts and apps can, that contain his most popular vocal ticks. This is very interesting because certainly experts are saying that, that a lot of what he's got does resemble Tourette's, but there may be some, let's just say, some functional layers on top. Anyway, the focus is not so much on him, but the phenomena that uh, I think occurred around him, which is that researchers have found a big rise in number of uh, young patients who've been referred to their specialised clinics for Tourette's uh, associated with uh, Jan Zimmerman. Why do we say associated? Because they've got the same uh, behaviours and vocal tics that he does. But it's not just the fact that you know, these kind of symptoms, so to speak, are the same. It seems to be a little bit different to you know, regular Tourette, so to speak. See, regular, most commonly, I should say, Tourette's tends to occur at a younger age, at ages five to seven, mostly boys. And it starts off at milder and then gets more severe. This is not the pattern we're seeing. We're seeing this happen in older kids, kind of 10, 11, 12, younger teens, uh, far greater female representation, and things just kind of start off severe in the first place. So it doesn't seem to be fitting that classic Tourette's picture. And a lot of these people seem to have symptoms that don't quite have that, the same kind of tics that we commonly see in, in, um, in, in Tourette's. He's not the only influencer, of course. Evie on TikTok is also a big one. Long story short, some research is saying that this is evidence of something called a mass psychogenic illness. That is to say, things that are spread through this kind of social kind of phenomenon. Um, and where we can't necessarily find a physical or what we could say in medicine, an organic uh, cause. And I'm wondering actually if, if either of you have heard of these kind of social contagions before, because this sounds like a really new thing, and the social media aspect is new, but uh, th- we've actually heard echoes of things like this in history. It, it rings bells for a couple of things, but just before I, I go to that, again, being super cynical mm. and 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 not um, au fait with all these long words you've been using, mm. um, <laughs> and given that it is social media, one of the first things I thought of is this: just another dimension to what we've come to understand as a social media influencer. You know, where people are kind of copying people that they like, you know, and maybe not in conscious ways, you know, um, and I know mm. consciousness is very debatable mm. in and of itself, but maybe not in conscious way, but, um, but they're just picking up on, in layman's terms, mannerisms um, and, and copying them. And it's just because social media is so prevalent and so widely accessible by huge amounts of people across a variety of populations we perhaps shouldn't be surprised hmm. that this is happening. So I think, firstly, just to latch onto that word you used, conscious, and we, we should uh, just kind of come back to that in a moment because that is a more nuanced and, yeah. and, and sensitive topic. But we will come back to that. Yes, it's not so unusual that we humans as gregarious beings uh, see people who are highly influential and, and kind of uh, copy their mannerisms, I suppose. And even on a subconscious level, a lot of people are saying that well, there are so many subconscious reasons why we, we might want to identify with that person. Everything from a parasocial relationship to the fact that there's a genuine community now of people on social media who are saying they're getting these Tourette symptoms, giving especially young kids this sense of, of belonging and understanding. That slight kind of oppositional streak that a, a mm. lot of young people have, is this satisfying what is actually an otherwise kind of normal uh, mm. teenage kind of need and urge? But this is different insofar as a lot of these... 
children who are having these symptoms say that, well, they are oppressed by these symptoms, that they mm. are not enjoying having these, mm. which is why it is uh, important anytime someone's saying that is to, to look at it through the framework of um, of a pathology and illness, no matter what, what end that leads us mm. to. And it's interesting that it's having an actual physical physical impact you know a lot of things can we can in medicine we can almost remove pathology saying well there's no actual functional impact here so we don't really need to worry about it but a lot of these these kids are describing quite a significant you know social um educational and just recreational impact on their lives when you used sorry uh dr shamu um when you were talking about this concept of mass um, sociogenic illness that's really caught my attention mm. can you help us understand that a little bit more clearly is that saying that the people who are manifesting these um, traits uh, is it happening in clusters like could we go to a particular um, schoolyard and we find that it's not just one student who's picked up these ticks or Tourette-like behaviors um, um, that it's clusters of students in that school, for example, Absolutely. peer, peer so, groups? Exactly. So that's uh, been the finding with mass sociogenic or uh, illness or you know, whatever, <coughs> the, the multiple synonyms for it, uh, that we find that it will spread to one person who tends to have more of an influencer-like capability even in that group and almost kind of like wow. a, uh, wow. in the same way you kind of contact trace, uh, a, uh, a, a viral illness that you can find that it, it tends to spread. Uh, and again, not something that we've only seen with social media, but before social media too. So you go back even to the, to the Middle Ages, there were these people said that had these dancing manias, just overcome with this fit of mm. stripping down and dancing and howling and other people observed and do the same things. Um, but those are the, the, those are the phenomena that we have identified. I wonder about all the other things we may have missed mm. and not identified as mass uh, psychogenic illness. So, for example, a really popular one in, um, in kind of conspiracy theory circles is the Havana Syndrome. Mm. I don't know if you guys heard of it. This is back in 2017, right? So this was a, a bunch of uh, workers in U.S. embassies in, in, uh, embassy in Cuba suffering a wide variety of symptoms that some investigations from, uh, from the U.S. authorities said this was a sonic attack by the Russian military. We're talking about symptoms from ringing in the ears to trouble thinking and maybe this is a military operation, whereas other operations just went, actually, no, it's possible that one person had some genuine symptoms. This was an example of a social contagion and now everyone kind of thinks they've got it. And one that has been continuing on since then and being found in other embassies, but other specifically US embassies around the world. God, I mean... You think about it, when you come at it from a conspiratorial framework yeah. that this is someone attacking us, the theory just becomes unfalsifiable, mm, doesn't yeah. it? Well, of course it's not happening everywhere else. It's only happening in the embassies. And if it's happening anywhere else, well, that's not yeah, a it's, it's That's something else. Yeah, and I guess you could start looking at um, cults, you know, and or some religions mm, um, sure. uh, and so on, you know, where there's communities of, you know, that are sharing behavioural traits, um, yeah, and I think that the important thing here is that it's obviously a lot more nuanced than the way that we're presenting it. Like, there's obviously quite a number of layers to this uh, presentation, and things like functional neurological disorder, which is um, a, a I would say an emerging diagnosis being made um, of neurological presentations that don't actually fit what we would expect from a, I guess, organic. So, like, some damage to the brain. For example, a stroke uh, presents in quite classical ways and a lot of these neurological deficits aren't presenting in this way and they get often 
labeled as a functional neurological disorder. Mm. More of a, a software, not a hardware issue in that the the connections aren't um, cut, but they're they're more disrupted in a way. And this is what a lot of these uh, like a lot of these kids could be could be diagnosed with. You know, they're they're presenting in with a neurological condition that um, doesn't fit organic pathology but is still having a real mm. impact on these individuals like um, Dr. Sharma was saying and I guess is worth um, not just you know poo-pooing yeah. each, each of the individuals and saying yeah. and I guess that is what distinguishes it from being you know looking at uh, communities of behavior and what we're what's under discussion here communities of behavior wouldn't say that those um, behaviors or ticks um, are interfering with their mm. lives they'd say it's enhancing lives where I guess this this group of people are saying this is starting to interfere with my life so i guess what i'm saying is an individual approach rather than a community approach needs to be taken sometimes yeah, yeah. Right. agree this is a podcast from triple r an independent media organization in melbourne australia to find out more about triple r or to explore many more shows podcasts articles videos and interviews head to the triple r website rrr.org.au to bring us home on uh, radiotherapy today, I've got this little uh, segment we're calling Pop Goes Your Health, where I get to scratch my head um, about a, uh, a health or self-help or a pop health, self-help or pop health trend that's caught my attention. I get to uh, see what uh, our medical experts in the studio have to say about it. And this week, I've got questions around what I'm hearing is called dopamine fasting. So let me, guys, tell you what I understand it to be, and then you can set us all straight and um, and give us a yay or nay. So I understand it's it's something that's been um, in in the term dopamine fasting has been around for a little while in the so-called research literature. Dr. Cameron Sepa, who's a psychiatrist at Stanford Uni, and um, and dopamine fasting is on a on a on that particular level is defined as something you will do if you're taking a break um, or looking for a reset from habits um, distinct from what we were talking about in the previous um, segment, but say from scrolling social media or it might be emotional eating or it might be gaming or it might be shopping or it might be porn, anything um, that's associated with the dopamine hit, the pleasure. Um, uh, uh, neurotransmitter, I gather. Um, so that's that, and it's often associated with um, the sorts of uh, treatment that psychologists and psychiatrists would consider around um, cognitive behavioural therapy, and CBT is something that's been on radiotherapy many, many times. Mm-hmm. But where it started to get uh, popular attention is, as is so often the case, with the buffin- boffins at um, Silicon Valley. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> The, these very same boffins who gave us microdosing, who gave us um, intermittent fasting, or if we're, I think, I think uh, we're supposed to call it uh, time restricted eating now, um, are bringing us dopamine fasting. What are your instinctive reactions, uh, doctors? I actually think that this is a fascinating idea because you know one of the things that we learn in medical school is that for addictive pathways, dopamine is the is the neurotransmitter and the, the one that's commonly used is gambling and um, pokies. These pokies machines are designed to trigger this dopaminergic pathway and a reward pathway and it will, people get flooded by this dopamine but um, like response and feel incredible and people will do it more and more and more. They need more and more of the response to get the same outcome. So they need to play the play more pokies and they need to get more wins. They need to 
keep trying for it to get the same feeling that they first had and they're always chasing that feeling. So almost intuitively, I can see how that this is such an alluring idea that you can almost starve yourself of these pleasurable activities to get that first response back. And I can I can see why it it became a fad. I can really, I really can. But I'm just trying to understand here because, again, this is the angle I'm coming from. I'm hearing about something new for the first time and I'm going, okay, some bits sound good, but... Hang on. So, is the idea that you just stop doing the thing that's bad for you? This is why. This is where my cynical this head is goes. It. Is it, this, isn't it just called this, giving up? This is, this is what. Right. So here's the thing. We, we, Quitting. We, we, in in some research, find an underlying mechanism of you know, dopamine, the reward pathway. Sure. Okay. But you know, to what extent is it the pathway that's really the the problem, and to what extent is this just a a, a larger psychological, social, cultural issue? Right. So. Part of my, my issue here is that you know, we often find that, frankly, Silicon Valley, they'll take what is an age-old problem, essentially, which is doing things that are bad for Addiction. You, you know, addiction, <laughs> essentially, fight, latching on to just a couple of scientific terms that in theory should give you a more nuanced approach to things but are actually incredibly reductive. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it's like, well... Is this actually changing how we would otherwise treat is, addiction? Is there Doc- any, well, that's right. And so um, Dr. Um, Sepa, um, who I mentioned, uh, coined this. He's been quick to say um, that there's no – although he admit, he frankly accepts that he used the term mm. dopamine fast, sure. um, but he's, he said he used it for utility rather than any scientific basis. Um, and he said, you know, it's actually impossible to fast from – neurotransmitters so uh, there's a redundancy there in the language i think the the key point here is that you can't monetize uh just giving up something that's bad for you you have to (laughs) has to be have a nice fancy term placed placed on it where uh you know the yuppies in silicon valley can can all latch onto and you can you can make some real money out of it this is it isn't it It's, it's reinventing the wheel and then selling you the nicer, <laughs> fancier, shinier wheel. Well, yeah. I mean, as far as I can tell, I, I didn't uh, don't didn't do an exhaustive search, but as far as I can tell, there's this hasn't yet found its way onto Garmin's or smartwatches or any of those other devices. You're giving them you know? advice. <laughs> uh, ideas. I mean, ideas. You know, because you, know, you know, we can on our smart devices, you can monitor your sleep, your heart rate, your blood yes. pressure, all of the these sorts of things. Um, as far as I know, dopamine's not being measured on there, but. It's given that it's coming out of Silicon Valley. You wonder if that meeting's taken place. Oh, absolutely. And I guess I guess our um, our expert, uh, not so much expert, medical advice is moderation is key. <laughs> yeah. Um, shocking, I know. It's yeah. real groundbreaking stuff here on radiotherapy. Yeah, right. And I've certainly heard on radio. <laughs> I've certainly heard plenty of times on radiotherapy. Look, if something you're doing is interfering with your enjoyment of life. You know, whether that be doom scrolling or alcohol or cigarettes, then it's time to, to give it a miss, whether you call it fasting or not. Is, um... I mean, yeah, and, and there is nuance to the ways that you can reduce these things in a durable, tolerable way. Yeah. But unfortunately, I've got a feeling that the framework of a dopamine fast is probably not going to do that. Not going to do it. Look, that's that's our lot for um, uh, this this fine Sunday. Uh, thanks for being with us, um, those of you who have been listening in. But a big thanks to our guest, Aaron Jigan from Australia's MSF, our advocacy coordinator there. Don't forget, you can find us on all the socials, Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. We'd love to hear your thoughts and comments. If Once Around wasn't enough, you can catch up with us uh, on our podcast or on demand. 
Hi, this is Panel Beater. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Radiotherapy, a weekly radio show dedicated to health, medicine and well-being, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Feel free to get in touch with us via Radiotherapy's Facebook page.